Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2014 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Clint Bullock, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Building a Federalism Shield, The States Fight Back, and it was recorded on August 5th, 2014. Good afternoon. It is such a pleasure to be back in, in Hoover and especially at Hoover in Jackson, Wyoming. I have often thought of Jackson as what surely must have been the role model for Galt's Gulch in, uh, in Atlas Shrugged, although I hear from my friends who are local here that the politics here are a little to the left of, of Galt's Gulch. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I absolutely love it here. And uh, before going on, I want to introduce you to uh, a special guest of, of mine, uh, my son, Ryan Bullock. If you can stand up so people can see you. Uh, this summer, Ryan said, Dad, if you get invited to go anywhere cool this summer, I'm going with you. And Jackson definitely qualifies as cool. So we're really happy to be here. A quick word about Ryan. Uh, those of you who have seen me speak before know my passion for education reform. And certainly our country is in horrible shape when it comes to our K-12 uh, educational system. One exception to that the, the true gem of our educational system is many of our charter schools around the country. And Ryan attends uh, BASIS, which is one of the, the best, if not the best, uh, group of charter schools based in Arizona. They now, have, uh, they now have schools in D.C. and Texas. They're going to start opening private schools in charter-unfriendly states, uh, they're opening a private school in Brooklyn and in Silicon Valley later this year. Uh, they regularly rank among the top 10 public schools in the entire United States, notwithstanding the fact that they have completely open admissions. Ryan's curriculum last year uh, was, let me see if I can remember all of this, algebra, physics, chemistry, biology, Latin, English, history, art, and PE. I would be impressed if that was his 11th grade curriculum. That was his sixth grade curriculum. And, and I think schools like BASIS exemplify the fact that we are not challenging our kids nearly enough. The kids going there, just watching them thrive, uh, when Ryan and I, some of you probably watch Breaking Bad, uh, we're, we're catching up on it right now. And uh, I'm learning chemistry for the first time in my life watching that show. Ryan already knows all that. So, well, hopefully he doesn't know exactly that stuff, but some, some of the stuff that's, uh, that's being taught. And uh, it's just really sensational. So if you get a chance to talk to Ryan later on at, at dinner or the reception, by all means, uh, uh, please ask him about, about his school. My topic today is really taking the offensive for freedom. Obviously, we in the freedom movement have lost Washington, D.C. At best, our House of Representatives fights uh, uh, a defensive war, sometimes winning, oftentimes losing. We still control a bare majority 
on the United States Supreme Court. But things are certainly not looking very optimistic there. It's been a long time since, since much good news came out of our nation's capital. But we are not, uh, fortunately, fully dependent on Washington, D.C., because we, uh, as part of the genius of our framers, are governed not only by Washington, but by the states as well. And when we think about our constitutional liberties, many of us, myself included, automatically think of the United States Constitution, when in fact all of us have two constitutions, our state constitution as well as our federal constitution. And one of the things I sometimes feel like a kid in a candy store in this regard is that state constitutions almost always contain, or I should say always contain, more protections of individual liberty than the U.S. Constitution does. The U.S. Constitution is the floor for liberty, and the state constitutions go beyond that. And while it's almost impossible to amend the federal constitution, state constitutions generally are are much easier to defend. And so my colleagues and I at the Goldwater Institute working with freedom advocates all around the country have been working to try to use our state constitutions to fight power against power against the federal, against not the federal constitution at all, federal government when it overreaches its powers under the federal constitution, which it does with increasing regularity under the presidency of Barack Obama. And uh, what we're trying to do is to create what we call a federalism shield, where no matter what goes on in Washington, D.C., in states like Arizona and and Wyoming and other freedom-oriented states, we can preserve our own liberties even if the federal government is attacking them. One of the most encouraging recent trends in U.S. Supreme Court jurisprudence is recognizing that state constitutions and states can protect their citizens against the federal government. Just to give you two examples, and and the first one, especially apropos with with what I'm going to be talking about at the end, Uh, many years ago, Oregon approved uh, a statewide initiative called the Right to Die. Many of you know uh, that uh, about that initiative, basically uh, physician-assisted suicide. And I, sus- I suppose, I suspect that uh, views on that initiative vary dramatically in this room. But nonetheless, the Bush administration actually challenged that initiative and said, we have a federal law that prohibits uh, physician-assisted suicide, and you can't do it. And the U.S. Supreme Court held, yes, they can. Oregon can protect that right, the right to, to decide whether to end one's life above and beyond what the federal government uh, allows. And basically what the court said was, that the states have hegemony over areas that are traditionally regulated by the states. And healthcare is one of the things that is traditionally, though not recently, regulated by the state governments. Another case that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court was from my adopted state, Arizona, which decided it wanted to have an English-only, an English immersion program for its bilingual kids, basically deciding that the best way to learn English is to speak English. 
Imagine that. Well, of course, this flew in the face of federal law, which has all sorts of rules for bilingual education. And, they took, and the federal government once again sued the state of Arizona, which is something that it really loves to do. It really loves to sue Arizona. Arizona took it to the United States Supreme Court and won. Again, under the same theory, education is traditionally an area of state rather than federal regulation. We are going to let the state decide how to order its educational activities. Well, taking those cases and similar cases, at the Goldwater Institute, we have been designing measures to advance freedom in the states. And I'm going to tell you about three of them today. I'm very excited about The first was shortly after Barack Obama was elected president. And I'd like to to ask you uh, to see if anyone happens to know this figure. Uh, In 1954, the percentage of Americans working in the private sector who were members of labor unions was 35.3%. Over a third of all Americans working in the private sector were members of unions in 1954. Does anyone know what that figure is today? It was 35.3% in 1954. Anyone want to hazard a guess? It is now, it is 6.7%. I never like to give a talk without delivering some really good news, and I think that is good news. That percentage has gone down year after year. Now, unfortunately, it's been, uh, it's been, overwhelmed by the percentage of people in the public sector, of course, being unionized. But Barack Obama and the Democratic Party realized this is a crisis because the unions, for them, not for us, uh, because the unions are the lifeblood of the Democratic Party. And when Obama came into office, his number one legislative objective was a piece of legislation that had an Orwellian name, the Employee Free Choice Act, but there was nothing free choice about it. It was better known, and you probably remember this term, as card check. Traditionally, when Americans have unionized, they have gone into a ballot booth and cast a secret ballot as to whether or not to organize a union. Barack Obama was very upset about this because increasingly in recent years, Private sector workers have looked at what has been happening in unionized private sector uh, employment, and they want nothing to do with it. So they vote no when they're in the sanctity of the ballot booth. So the Obama administration made its number one legislative priority uh, abolishing the right to secret ballot in union elections and replacing it with a system called card check. And the way card check would have worked I'm happy to say so far would have worked, is that uh, each employee is presented with a card. And if you sign the card and 50% plus one of the employees sign those cards, you automatically have a union. Now, what does this do? It opens the system up to horrendous coercion. It's one thing to vote your conscience in a ballot booth in secrecy is quite another when the local union, I'm sorry, union representative comes up to you, taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, Carol, wouldn't you like to sign this card? 
And as soon as they have your signature, they own it. Not only that, but once a union would have been recognized under card check, the employer would have been forced into mandatory arbitration over a contract. And if a contract was not agreed to within 120 days, the government would have supplied that contract for the employer. You can imagine what a sea change this would have been in the private sector, and that was exactly what was intended. Well, think back to when Barack Obama was elected president. He had overwhelming majority in the United States Senate and a solid majority in the United States House of Representatives, and this is one of his top legislative priorities, and yet it is not law today. Well, we fought a two-front battle in fighting card check. One was the valiant lobbying effort that was being waged in Washington, D.C. But in the hinterland, in Phoenix and elsewhere, we thought, you know what? That's not enough. And the liberals have unwittingly given us an incredible gift. And that gift is that they are assaulting something that is American as apple pie, the right to a secret ballot. So we went to the ballot in four states with a constitutional amendment called Save Our Secret Ballot. And it said that any time a union is organized, the uh, union has to be organized by a secret ballot election. This is a right that does not belong to the employer. It is a right that belongs to the employee. This, to put it mildly, was a very, very popular idea. At the same time, people thought we were crazy. It was in terms of federal preemption. The universal view was that, uh, that in areas of labor law, the federal government is absolutely supreme and that the states have no business and no power to, uh, to resist whatever the federal government wants to do in labor relations. There was only one lawyer I could find in the entire country who agreed with me that we could do this at the state level. At the time, he was not very well known. I'm happy to say he's now a member of the United States Senate, and his name is Mike Lee uh, from Utah. And he was as crazy as I was. Um, even crazier because he ultimately ran for office. But uh, in any event, we went to the ballot in Arizona, South Dakota, South Carolina, and Utah. And when uh, election day came, the lowest percentage success we had was in Utah, where it was approved with 60% of the vote. The highest percentage, South Carolina, not surprisingly, 86% of South Carolinians voted to preserve the right to secret ballot. Since then, four other states have adopted this. Constitutional or not, this created a political tsunami against the Obama administration and card check, the idea that the Democrats were doing away with the right to secret ballot. One particular demographic voted for these initiatives more than any other, union members, informed consumers. They knew very well what would happen if the right to secret ballot were taken away and, and replaced with union bosses. The tsunami was so effective that the administration abandoned 
its efforts to enact carjack. They still, nonetheless, came after us. The NLRB, uh, my favorite Obama administration agency of them all, came into Arizona, challenged it on preemption grounds, and I'm happy to say that the federal district court for the District of Arizona upheld the right to secret ballot in the Arizona Constitution, and other states have begun adopting this as well. So this is, this is basically, this was the game plan that we have been using ever since, to take an issue that transcends party labels, that transcends ideological lines, and to make it a part of the state constitution and to use that against the federal government. We're doing it again this year in two major ways. One is a measure that will be on the Arizona ballot called the State Sovereignty Amendment. It's, it's Proposition 122. There are some in the conservative movement who support nullification of federal laws. We can't nullify federal laws. If it's within the power of the federal government to enact a law, there's nothing that a state can do to nullify it. But the states do have control over one very important facet of what the federal government does. It's money. In decision after decision, even the Obamacare decision, a total disaster in most ways, nonetheless recognized that the states cannot be coerced to spend money at the bidding of the federal government. So this initiative, uh, actually a referendum, Proposition 122, the state sovereignty uh, amendment, if it is passed in Arizona, it would do the following. If the voters or the legislature deem that the federal government, through a law or a policy or a regulation, has exceeded its powers under the federal constitution, no state money can be spent to implement that law or policy. There is no question that this is constitutional. And there are almost no, aside from, from defense, national defense, there are almost no federal laws that don't require some sort of state action, some sort of state buy-in and state uh, expenditures to implement them. So how would this work? Well, many of you are familiar with the Medicaid expansion that, that was pushed on a number of states, including Arizona. Um, in recent years, a massive expansion of, of the welfare state. And basically, the federal government comes in, as it often does, and says, hey, we have free federal money for you. And the states, salivating at the prospect of this, say, where do we sign up for the free federal money? Then they sign up, and before long, who's picking up the tab for these federal programs? The states and the state taxpayers. It happens time and time again. Well, if we had had this state sovereignty amendment in place in uh, a few years ago, I would predict that the Arizona legislature and many other legislatures or the people themselves would have determined that Obamacare exceeded the federal government's power. And once it did that, once they did that, it would have cut off the ability of the state's to get into this devil's deal. And so it's basically a way to stop the states from, from agreeing to these open-ended obligations 
uh, that are taking place in so many states. Many of the states that adopted Medicaid expansion are the very states that would have uh, adopted these measures uh, saying that Obamacare was unconstitutional in the first place. This is an experiment. It's on the Arizona ballot this year. Very optimistic about the chances for passage. And one thing about good ideas, they are incredibly contagious. Just as Save Our Secret ballot was adopted in a number of states after it was adopted in the first few, so too do I think that this will be a popular item. The third and final example I want to give you is one that I suspect cuts close to home for every person in this room, and it's called the right to try. And I mentioned uh, when I was talking about Oregon's right to die statute that I was going to tie that back in with the last thing I was going to talk about. Some of you have probably heard about this measure that is beginning to sweep the country. As almost everyone in this room, if not everyone, has a loved one, a friend or a relative who has had a terminal disease. And it's an incredibly painful, painful experience, as, as we all know. And the instinct, not only among the, the victims of, of terminal disease, but all of the people who love and care for them, is to find a way to extend or preserve their lives. We have in this country, thank God, and hopefully we will continue to have it uh, for forever, the greatest medical technology in the world. Every day, a new, uh, a new device, a new drug is created that can save lives. Unfortunately, we also have an entity called the Food and Drug Administration. And it has a noble mission to make sure that things are safe, that we ingest. But over the years, through regulatory creep, that mission has expanded dramatically. And today, and I'm sure all of you are familiar with this, in order to get a drug approved for general use uh, in the country, it costs a billion dollars and 10 years of regulatory process. They sometimes fast-track the process when something is, is really promising, and it only takes seven years to approve a drug. Of course, during this time, medical trials take place, but only a handful of people can participate in them, and often half of them end up with placebos, and they're not being treated at all. So every year, millions of people die, even though there may be drugs that are available for them. Now, many people who have sufficient resources leave the country in order to find access to drugs they could extend or, or save their lives. But the vast majority of people do not have those kinds of resources, and as a result, they have no hope. Here's what Right to Try will do. Right to Try will, at the state level, establish the right to access drugs that have gone through the first phase of FDA approval. The first phase of FDA approval is the safety phase. That is what the FDA is supposed to do. After that, after it's passed the safety phase, companies can make drugs directly available, I shouldn't say directly, through doctors' prescriptions to people who would like to access the drugs. This idea... Uh, that 
uh, that we developed only last year, what we decided to do is to put it on the Arizona ballot, and it will be on the ballot this year as Proposition uh, 303. But we decided to take it on the road and to test market this idea, not just in red states like we did with Save Our Secret Ballot, but in blue states as well. We took it to Colorado, we took it to Missouri, and we did take it to one red state, Louisiana. Two of those three states have Democratic governors. And I am as excited as can possibly be to tell you that Right to Try passed in all three of those states unanimously. It is unbelievable. When is the last time you heard a unanimous vote somewhere on a really, really major issue like this? What a signal that is being sent to the federal government and to the Food and Drug Administration. Well, the FDA has not yet fought back, though I suspect that it will. But the reason that it hasn't fought back yet, I think, is because it assumes that most drug companies will not do this. And the reason they won't do it is because they are each investing, or sorry, risking a billion dollars in front of the FDA. And if the FDA says, we don't like you, you guys violated the law, guess what? They're going to lose that entire investment. Well, there is one company that has decided to go through with this. There's a guy uh, back east named Richard Gar, And Richard runs a company called Neuralstem. And they believe that they have come up with a cure for Lou Gehrig's disease. And I, I, I apologize. This uh, is a, a rather emotional topic. Lou Gehrig's disease afflicts about 50,000 people a year. And it is, a, it is a death sentence for these people. Richard, his, uh, his cure or his hopeful cure for, for Lou Gehrig's disease has gone through the first stage of FDA approval with tremendous results. But how many people got to be in this, in this first phase of the clinical trial? About a dozen. A dozen and the results have just been astounding so far, and, and it really looks like it's going to, to succeed. Well, Richard is already starting to set up the procedures, and it's a very complex uh, operation that is involved to, to deliver this drug in Colorado, which was the first state that adopted Right to Try. And the reason he is doing it is this. He says that every day he gets emails from people with Lou Gehrig's, Gehrig's disease asking how they can get into one of his clinical trials. And he always has to tell them the odds of getting into a clinical trial are about 12 in 50,000. And he knows that by the time his drug is approved, every single person who has emailed him will be dead. And he cannot and will not accept that. It takes courage. And I think Richard Garr is going to show these other drug companies that you've got to do this. This is an issue, again, that crosses ideological lines. Some of you probably saw that the really magnificent movie Dallas Buyers Club last year. And uh, one of the things I loved about Dallas Buyers Club is they didn't just castigate the FDA. They even got licks in the IRS in there. 
And this is a liberal Hollywood movie. I, uh, I believe that right to try will pass overwhelmingly in Arizona. And when I talked about a tsunami with, with uh, Save Our Secret Ballot, it's nothing like what we're seeing with right to try, with liberal Democrats joining with conservative Republicans in a freedom cause. And the, the reform of the FDA that has been stuck in Washington for decades, I think this is going to break a logjam. Next year, we'll be back in other states, and we'll even take on some of the, the huge monoliths like New York and California. Well, I think you can now see what I'm talking about when I talk about uh, the federalism shield. And there's so many, I mean, the, the number of things that we can possibly do is limited only by our imaginations. Another idea that, that I believe we're going to uh, go with uh, uh, in the next election after this one is a water sovereignty amendment for Western states. Uh, many of you know that uh, the EPA has come in and it's, it is unleashing all sorts of new regulations on nav- navigable waters. And, of course, these navigable waters include places that have not been wet aside from rain, you know, in in decades. And again, states traditionally have authority over water in their states, non-navigable waters in their states, and establishing that hegemony and going face-to-face, mano-a-mano, with the federal government, I think the states have a good chance of prevailing and preserving their freedom. There's one other aspect of this strategy that I think is very, very important, and that is that we need to be not playing defense, but playing offense. Mitt Romney's uh, campaign showed us that we really are at about 47%. We need to find ways to get above 50%. And the best way to do it is to show people on an individual level that they have a greater stake in freedom than they do in the welfare state. Whether it's the right to secret ballot, whether it is the right of themselves or their loved ones to access potentially life-saving drugs, this is all about freedom. And we have got to identify ourselves with issues that resonate and affect individuals at their most core levels, whether it's school choice, whether it's private property rights, the things that, that people really, really care about that affect their daily lives. And if we do that, I think that we can begin shifting that pendulum back away from the regulatory welfare state toward freedom. And I'm happy to have had the opportunity to share just a few of those ideas with you today. Thank you so much, and go get them. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channel in iTunes U. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.